president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME. My favorite labor song is Solidarity Forever. It's also a novel that does something very unique. It's not Nani just sitting in his office as a kind of, you know, a bourgeois writer, which he was, <laughs> imagining the lives of working class people at Fiat. This was the result of Nani being at the factory gates during these strikes, turning on his tape recorder, working side by side late into the night with people from all walks of life. We brought a couple of grassroots leaders up from Bolivia. I wanted to welcome these community leaders, these courageous folks who would, at great risk, put their lives on the line to make lives better for the ordinary people, the everyday people. Nobody's ordinary. People are everyday in Bolivia. So I wrote them a song. Hi and welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, Ask Me President Lee Saunders on his favorite labor song, Labor's troubadour Joe Glazier on the history of that song, novelist Rachel Kushner on We Want Everything, Nani Balestrini's classic novel about the Italian fiat workers' strike that led to a mass uprising, and folk singer Cy Khan launches a new feature here on the show, The Story Behind the Song. Sai tells us how he came to write La Libertad. Plus, the year was 1946. That was the day Americans awoke to national headlines that the strike wave already underway since the previous fall would most likely continue and intensify well into the new year. That's all coming up on today's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. Here's the show. Saunders, president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME. My favorite labor song is Solidarity Forever, because the lyrics are so vivid and so powerful. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. was captured. When the commanding officer, Colonel Robert E. Lee, asked John Brown what was his purpose, Brown replied, my purpose, sir, is to free the slaves. By whose authority, asked Robert E. Lee. And John Brown answered, by the authority of Almighty God. 
lies mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies mouldering in the grave. But his soul goes marching. sat in her hotel room in Washington, listening to the regiment sing John Brown's body as they marched to the front. From her windows, she could see the campfires of the Union Army, and as she watched them, a poem began to form in her mind. Swift sword, his truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. years after Julia Ward Howe wrote the battle hymn of the Republic, Ralph Chaplin, a poet, artist, and organizer for the industrial workers of the world, wrote Solidarity Forever. The idea had come to him while he was in West Virginia, helping the coal miners during one of their great strikes. Chaplin said, I wanted a song to be full of revolutionary fervor and to have a chorus that was singing and defiant. Solidarity
There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity They never toil to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel could turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Of armies magnified a thousandfold, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. For the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hey, this is Bob Odie from Million Dollar Organizer. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. In the fall of 1969, Italy exploded. Across the north of the country, factory workers stormed out on strike, demanding better pay and working conditions. The slogan, We Want Everything, rang through the streets. Italy's hot autumn had begun. We Want Everything is the title of Nani Balestrini's fictionalized account of the uprising. Rachel Kushner, author of the critically acclaimed The Flamethrowers wrote the introduction for Verso's 2022 English edition. She discussed the book last month on the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly radio show on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. And that is Mike Patton's Kenote on his album Mondo Kane. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Tino Scalisi. If you're just now joining us, I ask that you lock in, pull over if you can safely, settle down. Maybe make a cup of espresso, gather around the speaker. Maybe plug in your playback device to whatever large sound dispersal system you have access to, especially if you're at work right now. And for a very special surprise on our show, not only for Nani Balestrini's novel, We Want Everything, a fiery and intense story set in an auto factory in 69 northern Italy that reads fresh as paint, by the way, but also for a very special surprise guest. She was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2018, a two-time finalist for the National Book Award in 2008-2013 for her debut Telex from Cuba and Flamethrowers and later Mars Room, the incredibly talented Rachel Kushner. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tino. <laughs> um, Rachel, firstly, I just want to say uh, what a privilege and honor it is for me and for our show and for our audience uh, to speak with you tonight, I've read all three of your novels uh, in order in around 1919, or excuse me, 2019 and 2020. I love them all. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing them. Thank you for for sharing with us. Um, And, you know, uh, know, on their literary merit, of course, but also as uh, someone who is from the Motor City, I'm from Detroit, Uh, I am an auto worker, third generation, and you know, maybe this can be an entry, like a cool way to sort of get into Nani's work. Um, and it has to do with identity. Um, and if I can, real quick, I just wanted to give you the sort of the 60 second version of why I found your work so attractive. First, uh, I worked at housekeeping in Kansas City at a casino uh, with a guy who wrote for the National Labor Federation in Cuba, uh, pre-revolution and then right uh, directly thereafter. Uh, and there's so many wonderful stories. And reading Telex from Cuba, your debut novel, sort of put me into a place in history in a way that I just didn't have access to before. So there was the fiction, and that really helped with that. And then there was also the flamethrowers. Uh, again, I'm an auto worker and a great-grandson of a Sicilian immigrant, and your novel hit those two points for me in a really uh, beautiful way as well. Uh, and more than that, just for all of you who are listening, these books were just a hell of a lot of fun to read. And the same goes for Bill Estrini's book uh, and that you wrote the foreword to. Can you tell me what it was about We Want Everything that um, that made you say yes to writing the foreword and to kind of being kind of a, a spokesman for Bill Estrini's work in, in the U.S. anyway? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, first, thank you so much for mentioning my novels and for reading them. And it's you know, in terms of honors, it's um, it's really a great honor to be to be read by people and to see that they can draw their own personal connections between what they read and their own lives and what they care about. Um, so, in terms of Nani, I had read first uh, a novel of his called *The Unseen*. In Italian, it's The Invisibly, The Invisibles. Mm. And that's a book that he wrote later um, about the what's called the Movement of 77 in Italy, which kind of comes out of the automotive labor union, what they call the hot autumn of 69, but also included students and women, all kinds of people who were rejecting the kind of rigid and limited terms of very structured class society in Italy in the 1970s. Um, I read that first. Mm. And I I read it while I was writing The Flamethrowers, Mm. my own book that includes, you know, a lot of scenes from the 70s in Italy. I'm also interested in labor history and also, frankly, machines um, (laughs) and modernity and where the sort of excitement of speed and the violence of class oppression sort of intersect, but not in a polemical way. Right, right. Just, you know, in in terms of, of art and what the novel can render scene that was previously invisible. So I read that first, and I wrote The Flamethrowers, and then um, I got an email from Nani Bellastrini that he had read my book in Italian translation, and he wanted to meet. So. Oh, wow. I happened to be um, in Rome, and I spent the day with him, and he was a very, very amazing man. He came to the airport to greet me, (laughs) and we spent the day together, and I can't remember where I was going, but I was leaving Rome and needed to go to the train station, um, Germany in San Lorenzo, which is like the kind of great site of the uprising in the 70s in Rome. So it had this sort of symbolic resonance. And Nani took me to the train station and waited on the other side of the turnstiles. Maybe I have actually, I, I ended up writing about this in a in a piece I wrote after Nani died um, mm. as a, to be read at his memorial. In any case, we met, we made a connection. Then um, Vogliamo Tutto, uh, We Won Everything, had not been published in English, as far as I know. My husband had read it in French, okay. just because that's the language he reads better than Italian. I had read it in Italian. My Italian's not that great, but I found out that Verso Publisher wanted to do 
um, an English language edition, and I, I think they got in touch with me and asked, and the answer was, of course. Um, <laughs> it is an explosive, incredible book for many reasons. Just as a reading experience, yeah. the voice is so urgent, so funny, so devastating, so outraged, and so kind of, um, you know, it's this guy who comes from the South, ends up working on the assembly line at Fiat, and decides that the organized labor movement that's controlled by the Communist Party is not going to work for him. And that's the beginning of, you know, I guess you could call them wildcat strikes. Right, right. Assembly lines. Um, so I love the voice in the novel. Um, it's also a novel that does something very unique. It's not Nani just sitting in his office as a kind of, you know, a bourgeois writer, which he was, <laughs> imagining the lives of working class people at Fiat. This was the result of Nani being at the factory gates during these strikes turning on his tape recorder, working side by side late into the night with people from all walks of life and specifically people from uh, the assembly line and kind of finding a way to record their voices and put them into the stream of an eye, you know, a first person witness to history. Sure. And it's just really interesting. And as far as I know, not replicated anywhere else. Well, what I wanted to ask you is that by doing that, uh, by using that, <clears throat> I don't, it's not a, it's not a for, maybe it is a formal choice to use the the subjective eye in his uh, in his writing uh, to stand in for. You know, I read in your foreword. You know, not only for one hit, like particular and historical man who ended up outing himself at the at the the, the memorial, but also for the the nameless, as you say, the nameless thousands who um, c- can read this work. Because I have to tell you um, that when reading this work, I'm like, <laughs> this is. I mean, it's not me. But I mean, this is like a lot of the guys that that I work with at. I work at Ford Motor Company, by the way, and have for 25 years. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company at the Rouge plant in uh, Dearborn. My grandfather before him, um, and man, I mean, just <clears throat> hearing like so, hearing that voice, hearing that subjective eye, it, it absolutely just felt like I was right in the middle of the of the heat. Right. I mean, then it's so interesting that you work at Ford, and as you say, our third generation automotive worker. We say it's a genetic um, disorder know, passed on from father to son. <clears throat> I, you know, and I, I, I'm not that myself, but coming out of, um, I guess what I would call like a motorcycle scene, I knew many people who came from sort of the, you know, deindustrialized rust belt yeah. who um, were the descendants of people who worked in automotive factories and had worked in them themselves a friend from Ohio who worked at Fisher Body and his dad mm. worked at Fisher Body as did his grandfather and he would tell me these stories about like getting injured on the assembly line yeah, and then whisked into this underground medical facility <laughs> where the company is going to great lengths to prevent people from filing workers comp claims and it, it's like a Buster Keaton film. Man, you hit it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Comedy yeah. is undercut by brutality. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that that eye is very natural to connect to. There is something universal. I met someone recently who had worked at a Mercedes plant in Stuttgart. And the stories that he told me were so bizarre and fantastical and yet you know, undercut by the same brutality that Nani is able to excavate with that voice, whether it is his friend Alfonso, you know, who, as you point out, shows up at his funeral, um, or, you know, a collective kind of voice that is filtered into one fictional character. It all feels very real, and it's the story of the 20th century, and still now people working on assembly lines and having to deal with factory politics at yeah. great risk. 
Yeah. And, you know, there, there was a line uh, for me in, in your forward, and you, you quoted from him, and I have to, to ex, uh, delete the expletive, but only a drone, quote, only a drone could spend years in this uh, expletive deleted uh, thing uh, and do a job uh, that, or a prison, excuse me. Uh, let me redo that. Only a drone could spend years in this prison and do a job that destroys your life. Um, that really sort of uh, stuck out for me. And it reminds me of some something that I was reading, and I can't remember if it was, who was it? Was it Simone Weil? Maybe it was, uh, who talks about uh, the affliction. Um, and so in terms of the title of the book and the movement that came out of it and the placards that, you know, we want everything, there was that uh, Herbert uh, uh, Marcuse sort of... Uh, uh, refusal, uh, the great refusal, the the protest against that which is, and um, and I think about, you know, what for people who do work on the assembly line and myself included, but what you know, the big labor movement push, I think, in this country in the past ten years has been the you know the fight for fifteen movement or. Um, uh, 15 and a union was was the rallying cry and it's a marked difference from what was being asked for in 1970s in Italy we want everything and I, I wonder if so you say in your foreword that you had a conversation with Nani Bellastrini about uh, you know these are different times uh, there's different circumstances different people and we need to find sort of new ways or people will find their new ways um, and I wonder if in, in, in modern times, in 2023, uh, would that sort of thing still apply? Would you still be able to have a national movement that can fight for something greater than uh, sort of the traditional labor union demands? I know it's a long question, yeah. convoluted. No, it's a, it's a keen and warranted question, and I'm not sure I'm the person to answer it. Because, you know, I'm not an expert on labor movements. I'm not an intellectual i'm just somebody who reads and who imagines yeah. and tries to sort of i don't know you know make art but i'm interested in all of these things and it just so happens that my my husband jason smith wrote a book about automation and he's written extensively about um the labor leader james boggs who you probably know b-o-g-g-s okay from Detroit and my husband Jason says that the scope and magnitude of the labor movement and on the assembly lines among you know the UAW in the 20 mid 20th century was just significantly much larger than anything we're seeing right now but I would like to think that we are having some kind of um, a new a new labor movement, and maybe connections can be drawn from teachers to nurses um, who both have had very active unions in the last few years to the United Auto Workers, and some sense that people are fractured because of the service industry and precarious labor. Um, you know, in less skilled, you know, jobs that can, like where people can collectivize. Right. Um, but there's something going on. And, you know, I think that Nani was very smart to say, you can't apply my book to things right now. And what he's doing, I think, in saying that is actually remembering, with or without nostalgia, that what's required to forge relationships with other people and make something new, whether it's a movement or a novel, is to deal with what you see around you and not try to reproduce the past. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. And I, <clears throat> I, I sort of on that point, and I feel so bad because I, I, I feel like I could talk to you for like two or three hours on the telephone, but I'm not, you know... We've got another two minutes or so, and um, you got to go back to work. I don't know. Actually, you know what I did, uh, Rachel, is I took off today in order to do this interview, and happily so. And then I'm and then I'm off for the next two weeks for Christmas. So 
This is fantastic. Oh, good for you. Yeah, thanks. Um, but I wanted to say, you know, working on the assembly line, it was just a, a, you know, a couple of days ago, but uh, very often when I look around me, you know, like me, uh, a lot of people are plugged in to their earbuds uh, or, you know, watching movies <laughs> or listening to podcasts or whatever. And uh, I just heard an interview recently with Zadie Smith where she was talking about her audience, like, you know, what do you think about your audience? And it was for her latest book, The Fraud. And she was like, well, I don't know. They're probably like me. You know, they're androids uh, to a certain extent. Um, and I wonder if, you know, the, the possibility for, for doing something and, and making change, if that is not, you know, hampered in part by, you know, what Will Self calls uh, bi-directional digital media and being obsessed with tech and phones and uh, being distracted, as it were. I mean, I think that the, the environment in Nani's time and current times is just a little bit different. Of course, and um, that's not to be underestimated. And I hate to sound uh, a bit romantic, but because my most direct and explicit exposure to the younger generation happens through my 16-year-old son, <laughs> I notice that he has zero interest in digital life nice. and social media. And I don't know if that's the reaction to the people just above him, but I think there are those who are saying no meet space only please so your son is the shining example of what the future may hold if we have the discipline uh rachel thank you so 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 much for uh for talking with us this morning again it was a uh, an honor and a privilege and i appreciate you so much um and um, and again for for sharing nani bellastrini uh with an american audience and with our kansas city audience thanks again you're welcome. Thank you. The honor and privilege was mine. You're very sweet. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Mike Strukin from the Labor Force Podcast. I'm proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Novelist Rachel Kushner on We Want Everything, Nani Balestrini's classic novel about the 1969 Italian fiat workers' strike that led to a mass uprising. That's from the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly radio show on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This date in 1931 was a day that helped to bring the hunger and poverty caused by the Great Depression to the attention of the nation. 500 farmers, black and white, marched on England, Arkansas to demand food for their starving families. A severe drought had destroyed crops in the region, already hit hard by the downturn in the national economy. The march became known as the England Food Riot, even though there were no actual acts of violence during the march by the farmers. Store owners in the town gave some food to the protesters, but real help came when the national media picked up the story. People across the nation read about the farmers in Arkansas and saw pictures of their hunger. They sent help. The story also caught the attention of the famous cowboy and humorist Will Rogers. Rogers had a very popular syndicated newspaper column. He used his column to bring attention to what was happening in Arkansas. Rogers wrote, You let this country get hungry, and they are going to eat. No matter what happens to budgets, income taxes, or Wall Street values, Washington mustn't forget who rules when it comes to a showdown. Rogers also went on tour to raise funds for drought relief for farmers in the region. One person who was not swayed by the pictures of hungry farmers and their families was United States President Herbert Hoover. President Hoover refused to have the federal government lend aid to the farmers. His refusal to mobilize federal resources to combat the Great Depression helped Franklin Delano Roosevelt win election the following year. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. 
Next up, Cy Khan has been an organizer, songwriter, author, and playwright for more than six decades. Though Cy writes songs about a variety of topics, he's especially known for songs about workers and their families. So we thought he'd be the perfect person to launch a new feature on the show, The Story Behind the Song. Today, Cy tells us how he came to write La Libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Many, many years ago, which is how most of my stories start these days, the organization that I worked with for 30 years, which was called Grassroots Leadership, which did civil rights and labor and community organizing and support work all over the South and some nationally and internationally. We brought a couple of grassroots leaders up from Bolivia to try to build some support in the United States for people's movements in Bolivia. You know, some countries have very sophisticated support networks in the United States, you know, with different towns, different colleges, different organizations being able to do lobbying on their behalf. And in those days, Bolivia had very, very little. So we brought up these two grassroots leaders to try to introduce some of the communities and organizations we knew to the really good work that was going on in that country. One of the things I've remembered is we were all sitting in a room just after they had arrived. And one one of the folks sitting there, I think it was Kathy Howard, our organizing director, who who had brought these folks up. She had been to Bolivia, had gotten to know them and had thought, so let's bring them to the States to try to build a network of support and communication. She said, so when you arrived in the United States, what surprised you the most? And they waited for a minute and then one of them said, you know, in the movement we talk a lot about infrastructure, about infrastructure. We landed at Dulles Airport and we start driving down the road. We're on a six lane highway. We're seeing these 40 story buildings. We're seeing these bridges that span span the Potomac River. And I thought, oh, that's infrastructure. So I wanted to welcome these community leaders these courageous folks who would, at great risk, put their lives on the line to make lives better for the ordinary people, the everyday people. Nobody's ordinary. People are everyday in Bolivia. So I wrote them a song. And the original song was for Bolivia. So, and I'm not, my Spanish accent isn't great, but I started by saying, para, lo, para Bolivia, estamos cantando. We're singing for Bolivia. And then, it, so the whole verse would go. Para la libertad estamos marchando. Para la libertad, la libertad. Para la libertad estamos marchando. Para la libertad, la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga. And then I went on through several other things that we're doing. We're singing, cantando, we're fighting, luchando, we're hoping, esperando. There's a couple of others in there. And then at the end, I walked back through all of the things that we were doing, estamos cantando, estamos usando, estamos esperando para la libertad, la libertad. I think they liked the song, despite my accent, right? 
it's 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 a nice sing-along i i write lots of sing-alongs chris i just think that's an act of community i i at least like to think that i write songs to sing with people not to sing for people and that's why when everybody says oh si is a singer-songwriter no singer-songwriters primarily write songs that they intend to sing i primarily write songs that i hope other people will sing individually collectively cooperatively in community i make albums as demos for those songs because otherwise how are people going to learn them so much later i have a friend named amy merrill we go back maybe 40 years and she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's a wonderful, wonderful playwright on the faculty of the Berkeley School of Music, you know, College of Music, you know, the great place where everybody from Rycliffe John to Kathy Matea shows up. And every two or three years when I'm in the neighborhood, we have brunch together at the SNS cafeteria in Inman Square. Now it's not the letter S and the letter S, although that's the way it shows up in the marquee, is Mrs. Adelson in 1907 going from booth to booth saying to the customers, S, S, in Yiddish, eat, eat. You know, and I get caught up on my Jewish delicatessen, you know, sometimes it's, it's gefilte fish, maybe it's kreplach, maybe it's chopped liver, you know, it's my fix. We don't get that here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, you know, we get caught up on our kids, on our grandkids, on our lives. It's, it's, it's a long-term friendship. One time, Amy said to me, you know, I wanna, I'm going to write a, a play about a country singer, a woman country singer. And I'm going to go to Nashville. You know anybody in Nashville? I'm like, oh, you do. I know people in Nashville. You know, so I made a couple of modest introductions to people that I thought could introduce her to the country music scene there. Three or six years later, you know, I'm in the middle of my matzo ball soup and I say, so how did it go? She said, you know, we hired a country singer to write songs and the songs were okay, but they weren't musical theater songs. They didn't move the action forward. So, you know, it didn't quite work. And I said, you know, I'm gonna be honest. I was actually hurt that you asked somebody else and didn't ask me. And I said, you know, I was, it's okay, but yeah, my feelings were a little bruised about that. I said, so, you know, maybe the next time you need some songs, maybe you could ask your friend Cy, you know? Three years later, this is not a sure. We're sitting there and, you know, we, we're padded, we're caught up. There's more grandkids. There's, you know, and she hands me a, you know, a nine by 12 brown paper, you know, envelope. I said, so what's this? She said, oh, it's my, my new play. I'm like, well, Mazatov, congratulations. Way to go. And I'm like, why are you giving this to me? She said, Oh, I don't know. I thought you might write some songs to go with it. Nice. So I go home to Charlotte, North Carolina. I open it. I read the script. It's wonderful. And I think this is not just a play with some songs. This story deserves a musical. So I call Amy up. I said, you know what? I know this is crazy, but I think this story there's just something about the nature of it. I can't even explain it. I just think it would make a great piece of musical theater. And I would like to give that a shot. She said, what a great idea. Let's do that. And I said, wow, that's so cool. But you know, I mean, you've got to play. It's ready to go to, to the stage. What if you don't like what I do? She said, then I go back to my original play and put it on stage. So, um, that's, believe it or not, part of the story 
of La Libertad because in the play, the opening number is that song, except it's now in English. So it's, you know, and I can't even remember how the line goes. Um, but when you come see it again, you'll find out. It played at the, at the Cambridge Square Theater in, in, strangely enough, in Cambridge, in, oh, into the Central Square Theater. Strangely enough, in Central Square in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, it played at the main stage West. It's the basketball California where I was the writer in residence, not really in residence, only when we're working on one of my musicals. So that's how the song came to be. Para la libertad estamos marchando Para la libertad, la libertad Para la libertad estamos marchando Para la libertad, la libertad Viva, viva, viva la huelga Viva la huelga y la libertad Viva, viva, viva la huelga Viva la huelga Y la libertad, para la libertad estamos luchando, para la libertad, la libertad, para la libertad estamos luchando, para la libertad, la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga. Y la libertad, para la libertad estamos luchando, para la libertad, la libertad, para la libertad estamos luchando, para la libertad, la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga. Y la libertad, para la libertad estamos esperando, para la libertad, la libertad, para la libertad estamos esperando, para la libertad, la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga. Y la libertad, para la libertad estamos cantando, para la libertad, la libertad, para la libertad estamos cantando, para la libertad, la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Para la libertad estamos luchando, estamos marchando, estamos esperando, estamos cantando. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. Viva, viva, viva la huelga, viva la huelga y la libertad. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1946. That was the day Americans awoke to national headlines that the strike wave already underway since the previous fall would most likely continue and intensify well into the new year. Close to half a million workers across several industries had been on strike for months. The immediate post-war labor unrest came as a result of slashing wages, hours, and jobs, while productivity 
rose as industry engaged in peacetime reconversion. Newspapers anxiously stressed that President Truman and the Department of Labor were working overtime to get hundreds of thousands of UAW members demanding a 30% wage increase back to work. The press feared another 1.5 million would be idle before the month was out. UAW officials, whose members had been on strike for 43 days, stated theirs was a strike against breadlines soon to come if wartime wages and standards of living were not maintained. Headlines counseled the public on looming strikes from steel, packing, phone, and appliance workers. The Packing House Union announced 200,000 workers across 147 plants would walk out within two weeks, while steel workers announced 700,000 more were ready to strike. The UE prepared 200,000 of its members to strike at GE, Westinghouse, and GM's electric division, while phone workers and related industries planned a walkout of 250,000. President Harry Truman responded with fact-finding boards that would impose 30-day strike bans while investigating strike-breeding industrial disputes. He also invoked the threat of widespread seizures if necessary, and did so in a number of industries including coal, packing, and the railroads. 1946 saw the largest wave of striking workers taking to the picket lines in U.S. history, fighting for better wages, hours, and conditions. is going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, please do drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. We'd love to hear from listeners. Our music today included Solidarity Forever with versions by the Freedom Song Network, the D.C. Labor Chorus, and by Joe Glazer, Labor's Troubadour, and, of course, La Libertad by Sai Khan. Hey, don't forget to get your free tickets to the Labor Heritage Foundation's MLK Gonna Take Us All Ball. That's coming up Sunday, January 14th, 7 to 11 at McGinty's in Silver Spring. Tickets are free, but you must RSVP. LaborHeritage.org. Click on Calendar. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show is produced by me, Chris Garlock, and engineered by Mike Nasella and Kalia Chapman right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. to the Just Completed program. If you'd like to offer feedback on any of our programming, please email us at 
info at wpfw.org. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Thursday, January 4th. Here are some headlines. An Israeli airstrike today destroyed a home in a portion of southern Gaza that Israel had declared a safe zone. Palestinian officials said the blast killed at least 12 people, mostly children. In the nearby city of Khan Yunus, Israeli troops continued their offensive, claiming to have uncovered tunnels used by Hamas. Israel's campaign has killed more than 22,000 people in Gaza, overwhelmingly women and children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. 85% of the territory's population has been displaced. An Israeli strike in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, earlier this week, threatened to instigate a rise in violence, but no escalations have been yet reported along the Lebanese-Israeli border. That strike killed a top Hamas leader. Former President Donald Trump asked the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday to reverse a ruling barring him from running for president in Colorado. The state was the first, followed by Maine, to rule that Trump was disqualified from seeking the Republican presidential nomination under a constitutional provision barring anyone who, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, close quote, from holding public office. Trump's lawyers have argued that the constitutional amendment at issue does not apply to U.S. presidents and that the question of presidential eligibility is reserved for Congress. The court is not obligated to take the case, but legal scholars and election officials have urged the justices to resolve the matter quickly so all states can follow the same policies. The Justice Department filed a lawsuit yesterday against Texas over the state's newly enacted immigration law, known as SB4. The law classified unauthorized entry into Texas from Mexico as a misdemeanor crime and deems re-entry into the state a felony. It allows state and local law enforcement officials to arrest, jail, prosecute, and deport undocumented migrants. The Biden administration insists that immigration-related offenses are matters for the federal government, not states. As the Justice Department states in the lawsuit, quote, Texas cannot run its own immigration system, close quote. The lawsuit seeks to declare the law invalid and block Texas from enforcing it. And Claudine Gay Harvard's first black president, who resigned on Tuesday after a successful right-wing campaign to oust her, addressed her decision to step down in a New York Times op-ed published last night. Amid accusations of plagiarism and backlash for her response at a congressional hearing on alleged rise in anti-Semitism on college campuses, she wrote, quote, My character and intelligence have been impugned. My commitment to fighting anti-Semitism has been questioned. My inbox has been flooded with invective, including death threats. I've been called the N-word more times than I care to count. Close quote. In the op-ed titled, What Just Happened at Harvard is Bigger Than Me, she also warned the tactics used against her were, quote, merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society, close quote. From WPFW News in Washington.